So this is a book, Hosea is, uh, written to Israel using the backdrop of a man that was being asked by God to have a prostitute as a wife. Like, wow, imagine that. Uh, He's being asked to love his wife, and it's to be a picture of what God had to do in his relationship with Israel to love Israel even though they'd been unfaithful to God. Um, Israel was unfaithful in their practice of idol worship, uh, including cavorting with temple prostitutes as a part of their idol worship. Pretty amazing. And we read in the beginning of the book, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. That's a lot of whoredom. As a result, God has announced numerous consequences to Israel's actions. And this equates, um, the, the consequences are kind of a micro level. The macro theme is the judgment of God. But it, but it comes out in this, uh, the consequences that Israel is having to experience with uh, all of their sin. Now, this is because we live in a moral universe that God has created. We ought to expect this, that there are going to be consequences that when you disobey an objective moral law, there are going to be consequences to that. It's true for the atheists. It's true for the non-Christian. It doesn't matter what you believe. You still live in a moral universe. Just like we're all subject to gravity, we're subject to living in a moral universe that God has created, and there are going to be consequences to that, especially for Israel, God's people who were called to be a testimony uh, to the world about God. And here they were living in this sin. They're supposed to be marked as God's people. Instead of being, you know, representatives of God, they resembled more being Baal worshipers. And their culture was completely swallowed up in it. The government rulers, the religious uh, rulers being priests, were complicit in the Baal worship. We're not a theocracy like Israel was, but I think God still holds leaders accountable. You're, You're leading a family, you're leading work, whatever it is you lead, God is going to hold you accountable. So I think God's going to hold political leaders today, and certainly religious leaders today, he's still going to hold them accountable. So, of course, this was talking about the divided kingdom. You had Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Both were guilty. So you had the judgment of God, large theme, and then this consequence that the people of God had to experience in being disciplined by God. Um, But whenever we talk about judgment, uh, there are people, it's kind of popular today, well, you know, that's the Old Testament, but that's not New Testament stuff. The New Testament drops any talk like that. Well, it really doesn't. Um, It's in the New Testament that talks about a future event called the judgment seat of Christ. We read in the New Testament in a gospel, for uh, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And in the New Testament book of Hebrews, it says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son, whom he receives. It is this kind of judgment that we are told not to take lightly, as you read on in the uh, Hebrews passage, uh, that this scenario is what is best for the children of God, 
confirms that we are his sons and daughters. It says that we share in his holiness. We yield fruits of righteousness. And as we become trained by his loving discipline, we learn faithfulness and endurance. Trained by the discipline. We get an acquired taste for that discipline, right? So you, you have an acquired taste for maybe certain vegetables or something. You know they're good for you, and maybe you didn't like them at the beginning, but now you can kind of, of uh, enjoy them. Brussels sprouts. Didn't like them at the beginning, but I enjoy Brussels sprouts. Just cooked in the oven, just drizzle a little stuff over them. Man, I love those. At first, I didn't like them. So it's holy to eat Brussels sprouts. I just want you to know that, all right? <laughs> it takes discipline. Faithfulness and endurance, though, are not big sellers for the church. But they're characteristic of a strong and healthy church. Church culture typically goes for what's shiny, loudest, biggest, and titillating. You know, the passage of, of Hebrews speaks of being trained by dis discipline. Just like I said, we acquire a taste for it. So we're no longer compelled by the shiniest thing. I think the COVID pandemic has done a lot to help us refocus and train what is really important for a church. There has been a massive reshuffling in the church. Our church has experienced it. Every church has experienced it. Some churches have lost 50% uh, of their church. We've had 17 confirmed families leave, 21 new families during that time. A massive reshuffling during this time. And every family, every church has to consider the things that are really important. That what is it that we have to continue to do as a church? And it always comes down to me, for me, to, <laughs> to me. <laughs> no, it doesn't come down to me. It comes down for me, to relationships, relationships and service to tether people to a faith community. It's not about programs, video quality, you know, some of that is fine, nice, nothing wrong with that. I can't control what Christians do, but I can have an influence about what we focus on as a church. We're committed to a healthy community, healthy relationships, service in our community, being sold out to our mission with a life-directed purpose. Again, I'm not here to evaluate other churches. I have a hard enough time just taking care of the one that I'm responsible for right here. But this, this relational principle is so important. We are in a covenant relationship with one another. Um, this was impressed upon me Friday while on a call with Rosita, who is our leader in Bethlehem, in Guatemala at our ministry partner. There was another leader there on the phone. We had Kim Gray on the call, Christina Gann and Nevaeh were also on the call. We spent the first 10 minutes on the call with each other, just telling each other what we meant to each other and how much we have missed each other. I've been to Guatemala several times and we obviously have not been able to visit since COVID. Guatemala is under uh, even stricter uh, rules than what, what we are. But there's been this genuine affection that has been developed over the years. So you know what happens when you have this relationship that's there? Sacrifice and time, no big deal. Money, sure. 
laboring. These are seen as privileges with people that we love. Love for the children, love for the staff at Bethlehem. If you don't have the relationship, all those things are like, eh, no thanks, no. But we have this long-lasting relationship, and we intend to stay until this ministry can be self-sustaining. Again, we don't do these things because Bethlehem has the nicest buildings, okay? Or the best worship, or the most convenient location or easy access. Quite the contrary. Uh, when I first visited Guatemala to look at all the different care points, or at least about a half dozen of them, that we could be a part of, uh, we weren't sure which one. But we took a six-hour drive from Guatemala City. This was the farthest one. And it was in the worst shape. I mean, you get out, the buildings were dilapidated. It was in bad shape. It needed the most work. And the minute I stepped out of that van, it wasn't an audible voice, but I just knew. And I, I said to myself, this is going to be the hardest one. This is going to take the most work. And this is exactly where God has us. And I just had tears coming down my cheek because I knew this is where God wanted CCC. Can we make a difference? You wouldn't believe the difference in that place now than from when we started. It's been amazing. And, and, but it's, it's flown, come out of this relationship that we have with them. It was so obvious a call from God melded with the covenant relationship with God and with others we joyfully give and labor. And we've endured. It's been hard at times. But because of the calling and the strength of relationships with God and them, we're able to do that. So if, if COVID has taught us anything, it's that this is where the staying power is. The strength of the relationships with God and others for a faith community. But Israel and Judah did not live in this reality, right? They chased idols, sexual pleasure. And as Hosea 2.13 says, and I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Went after the shiny stuff. Lost perspective. Covenant relationship, ah, who cares? And that's what happened. So we're going to finish up with chapter 6 today. So let's all stand as we take a look at this. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he's torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord is going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. We looked at all that last week, and now here's this week. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. 
Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie and wait for a man so the priests band together, they murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. So, Lord, we don't uh, claim to know everything, but we know that you live, that Jesus rose from the dead, and we know that we desperately need you. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to teach us today that we can at least get the main jewels from this passage, and then by the power of your Spirit, you can help us apply it. Lord, we're not here to have our ears tickled. We are here to grab a hold of your word and allow your spirit to mold our hearts. Do that today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I find this greatly encouraging, first of all, that you have the creator of the universe saying to us that he wants a loving relationship with us. How cool is that? The creator of the universe. This is, this is what I want from you. Let's, let's talk. Let's commune. I don't just want you giving me stuff. I just don't want you showing off your devotion with ritual. I want a living, abiding, loving relationship. I think that is cool. But Israel was transient in their feelings. They had empty words and religious rituals. But all of this could not make up for a shallow relationship. Wow, that is really cool. God wants relationship. He wants us to be connected in real and profound ways. This is not a relationship by trumping trumping up our feelings that have to be manufactured every week with a concert and words that soothe the ego. Religious talk that only includes the easy parts or the parts soothing to us without the difficult subjects like we see in Hosea, like judgment or talk about pain in the Christian life or or discipline. It fails to equip us for endurance and faithfulness. Listen to what Amos said. I hate, I despise your feasts, your potlucks. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Imagine God saying to churches today, I take no delight in you meeting together. It does nothing for you. It does nothing for me. It's a sham. Whoa, whoa. This is what he's saying. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals. Wait a minute, God. Don't you know how much money I have given? I will not look upon them. 
Take away from me the noise of your songs. What? Don't play your CDs of all your worship music during the day and then disobey me and act like that's going to cover up the disobedience in your life. It's a sham. This is what it's saying. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Justice. How we treat our community. How we treat others. Righteousness. Personal holiness. Obeying God when no one's watching. These are the things that God is truly concerned with. A life of obedience. So God desires love. An enduring, loyal love that's exhibited by obedience. Notice that this love is coupled with the knowledge of God. This means it is an objective, informed love that is based on the true character of God as he is, as he has revealed himself to us through the prophets, through Jesus, and through the Bible. The knowledge of God is not just referring to the facts about God, not just head knowledge, but a genuine recognition. Oh, this is the Lord. He's our authority. That I, I'm to live in subjection to the God of the universe, obedience to his will. That's the knowledge of God. It was Spurgeon who said, the secret of fullness of life is dying to the arrogant, willful self. With each diminutive death, it is a step forward in knowing the Lord. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the intention of a child of God, is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. Wow. Thoughts of God. Humility. I was listening to a podcast this week, and it was about marriage, and uh, the, uh, the person said that uh, in marriage, we often lead, um, you know, with our, with our hurts and what we need mended in our hearts, and this is the thing that consumes us. And when that does, and I want you to listen to what he's saying. Not saying deny it, but when that does, you can't help but be self-centered. And he said, the biggest problem we have in a marriage is being self-centered. It's, it's, it comes natural. It's our flesh. We get demanding. Don't you know you've hurt me? And my woundedness leads the charge. And God says, no, I don't want you to lead with your woundedness. I want you to lead with your self-sacrifice. Take on this same example that Jesus took on. Now, you and I both know that's supernatural. We don't. That takes discipline. That takes a will submitted to the Father. That doesn't mean you deny your woundedness. It doesn't mean there aren't things that need to be addressed. But I lead with the self-sacrifice. It's certainly not easy. Francis Chan wrote in his book, Crazy Love, Suppose you are in an extra. I don't normally like to read long quotes, but this is too good. I just couldn't pass it up, so bear with me. 
Suppose you're an extra in an upcoming movie. You will probably scrutinize that one scene where hundreds of people are milling around just waiting for that two-fifths of a second where you can see the back of your head. Maybe your mom and your closest friend get excited about the two-fifths of a second with you, maybe, but no one else will realize it is you. Even if you tell them, they won't care. <laughs> Let, let's take it a step further. What if you rent out the theater on opening night and invite all your friends and family to see the new movie about you? People will say, you're an idiot. <laughs> How come you think this movie is about you? Many Christians are even more delusional than the person I've been describing. So many of us think and live like the movie of life is about us. Now consider the movie of life. God creates the world. Were you alive then? Was God talking to you when he proclaimed it is good about all he had just made? Then people rebel against God, who if you haven't realized it yet, is the main character in this movie. And God floods the earth to rid it of the mess people made of it. From start to finish, this movie is obviously about God. He's the main character. How is it possible that we live as though it is about us? Our scenes in the movie, our brief lives, fall somewhere between the time Jesus ascends into heaven and when we all worship God on his throne in heaven. We have only our two-fifths of a second long scene to live. I don't know about you, but I want my two-fifths of a second to be about my making much of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That is what your two-fifths of second is about. End quote. Verse 7, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now there are three interpretations to this passage. And to be fair, I'll tell you what the three are, and then I'll land on one. One is that Adam refers to a place this is mentioned, Adam is, in Joshua 3.16 near the Jordan River. This was known as a place of robbers. Another interpretation is to uh, translate this in a generic sense, as in a human kind. Sometimes the same human word, uh, uh, word for Adam is translated humankind. Um, all humans, in other words, have transgressed against God. The third translation is... It refers to one specific man, Adam, who disobeyed God. Now, frankly, any three of these interpretations would make the point, but let's go with the most obvious one, that it's the man, Adam. God promised Adam blessing if he obeyed, but Adam willingly destroyed and plunged the human race into sin and death. God promised Israel the blessings of the promised land if they would obey him, but they broke the covenant and they suffered the consequences. And Israel, you are just like Adam. Judah, you are just like Adam. And God has appointed a harvest that they would reap just what they had sown. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. Many think that this is a coup that's talked about in 2 Kings 15 25, where 50 men from uh, Gilead participated in. But one of the priests played a part in the coup. And the story illustrates how Israel was rebellious to authority and actively opposed 
to righteousness. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. Hmm. The verse refers to the cities of refuge that God set up in Joshua. Listen to this in Joshua 20. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. So you didn't want to kill somebody, but somebody did end up being killed. So, you know, there are people who are going to be after you. So why not go to these cities of refuge so you can have some safety? They shall be there for a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take one into the city and, sh- uh, and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. So Shechem is one of these six cities that were set up as a refuge. And then in this way, the land would be spared of these outbreaks of bloodshed, people seeking vengeance, and justice would be promoted. The problem was is that as people were on their way to Shechem, you know what was happening? They were being robbed and some murdered. And guess who was leading the charge? Priests. Religious leaders. The cities meant to be cities of justice were associated with bloodshed and injustice perpetuated by the priests. Heartless priests became marauders. Let me suggest that abuse of authority, especially religious authority, is some of the worst kind of abuse. Spiritual abuse by religious authorities should not be ignored. All right? Please don't quote to me the verse of, you know, don't touch God's anointed. That doesn't apply here. All right? When somebody's out of line and abusive, they ought to be accountable. Whether it's a pastor, an elder, or head of a Christian organization, abuse can occur. When he or she wields their position of spiritual authority in such a way that it manipulates, dominates, bullies, intimidates those under him or her as a means of accomplishing their own goals. And one of the primary ways is a long record of broken relationships. You know any spiritual leaders like this? They don't have any long-term friends. Chuck DeGroote in his book, When Narcissism Comes to the Church. What a title. When Narcissism Comes to the Church. He argues that such pastors often leave a relational debris field or trail of dead bodies in their wake. He observes, and I quote, Often before the narcissistic pastor is exposed publicly, there are years of painful, smaller encounters that are covered up. In other words, spiritually abusive pastors have a track record of hurting those they work with and eventually, and usually after many years, it catches up with them. It's a sin pattern that can't be seen at first glance. It only becomes visible over time. And 1 Peter 5.24 says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment 
but the sins of others appear later. So eventually you see this. You know, their, their fruits will be seen. So we just need to make sure that whatever organization we're a part of, we are expecting our leaders to be genuine, to be relationally healthy, and not be manipulative or bullies or domineering or intimidating. And it's okay to confront them about that, including this one standing before you. Verse 10. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. Now there's another part of that verse that actually goes into chapter 7 that we'll deal with next week. Both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah had participated in rebellion against God. The religious and political leaders were guilty of spiritual and physical whoredom. Again, it was a theocracy. God was holding them especially accountable, but that doesn't mean we're off the hook today. And I want you to notice, they were calling this a horrible thing. It was sin. And sometimes a culture can be so jaded, so corrupt, that people are not allowed to call something horrible or a sin. Except that which falls under, you know, political correctness. Or what the culture approves or disapproves. But don't step outside of that. But in that state of morality, it's as fleeting as the wind. And it becomes this new kind of legalism. Not religious, but in fact, hating religion. Satan's not stupid. Recently, a former politician in Finland posted a Bible verse against homosexuality. Wasn't railing on them, just quoted the verse. She's now facing a two-year jail term because of a Bible verse on social media. She said, I don't see I would have in any way defamed homosexuals whose human dignity and human rights I've constantly said to respect and to defend. Well, I'd agree with her. They do have rights and deserve to be respected as human beings. But calling something sin, two-year jail sentence? You say, well, I'm glad that didn't happen in America. Huh. When one representative stood up in the U.S. Congress and read from the Bible, Representative Gerald Nadler from New York said this, what any religious tradition describes as God's will is no concern to this Congress. Frankly, I don't find the words shocking. I expect them, in light of recent history especially. But let us be clear, no nation is exempt from the judgment of God. And the consequences that it includes when you try to omit God from public life and you go your own way, we will be held accountable. Now, I'm not just pointing the finger. 
I'm going to be held accountable for my leadership. You'll be held accountable for your leadership at work. Anytime we're influencing people, we're going to be held accountable. There is a harvest to come. In other words, God's judgment is appointed, sure, and thorough for every religious leader and political leader and anybody else who's leading in any fashion. And by the way, virtue signaling on social media with hashtags, that's a cheap substitute for real moral leadership. Without adherence to God's objective standard, we are left with political correctness and wokeness. We could do what one Amazonian tribe does. They weave these gloves made of leaves. And within the gloves, they have what are called bullet ants within the gloves. They are some of the most painful bites you can get. Now, those who wear the gloves have to show their toughness and courage and character by wearing the gloves without screaming, without yelling. And this is to prove that they have good character. They don't just do this once. They have to do this 20 times. Thankfully, we don't have bullet ants here in America. At least I don't know of any. But may I suggest some other attire that we should consider? A belt of truth. A breastplate of righteousness. Shoes of peace. A shield of faith. A helmet of salvation. And the sword of of the Spirit. And as we do, we welcome the knowledge of God in all aspects of life, not trying to shut him out of my marriage or of work, and I'll just do it over here when I'm at church. But in all aspects, I put on the attire for my whole life to be influenced and submitted to him. Not leading in my relationships with my woundedness, but with my sacrifice for others as Jesus did. I choose, I discipline, I even go through the pain of serving others. Because it's not about me. It's about God having us on mission now, here, as his representatives. That is what leads to a fruitful harvest. And this is what God is calling us to as a church. Let's pray.